Hi, this is Father John Arnold, and welcome back to Oro Valley Catholic. This week we talk about the baptism of the Lord, and it brings the Christmas season to an end. And what I'm going to ask you to consider as you listen to this podcast is the connection between the baptism of the Lord and his crucifixion, because the early church saw it. You know, the liturgical cycle is supposed to invite us to enter in a worshiping way into the story of Christ Jesus. So if you remember in Advent, uh, Advent is all about prophecy. The second and the third weeks of Advent, we talk about John the Baptist. Those are the readings from the gospel uh, during those second and third weeks of Advent. In the fourth week, we turn to the story of Mary, Joseph, and Jesus, the Holy Family. But that the idea of Advent is it's about prophecy and fulfillment. Prophets are people who speak for God. They're not fortune tellers. They're not going to say, you know, bet on this team to win. That's not what a prophet is. A prophet always speaks for God. Fulfillment is the story of the incarnation, how God comes to dwell amongst his people. And think of all the ways that the Christmas season, following on the heels of Advent, talks about how God dwells amongst his people. In the Feast of the Nativity, God comes uh, dwells amongst his people because he's born like you and I are. In the Holy Family, which is the feast right after Christmas, God is part of a family. God's not this isolated deity. God is part of this human reality. God is part of our families. That's why Luke and Matthew spend so much time uh, to talk about the genealogies of Jesus. And if you paid attention to daily Mass, you would see that we celebrated the feasts of martyrs. We celebrated St. Stephen, the first martyr. Uh, well, the, not really the first. The Holy Innocents are the first martyrs, according to the Gospel. And that's the feast right after the Holy Family. We remember the feast of St. Thomas Becket, who was killed in Christmas time back in the 13th century. Martyrs whose witness of blood <clears throat> is tied to their baptism. Then last week, the Epiphany, which is the story of the Incarnation, the Holy Family, going out beyond simply an isolated human being in a small family, but revealed to the world with the story of the Magi who were brought by a combination of a star, their use of the gift of reason, and then the scriptures, and again, the Old Testament, especially the book of the, of the prophet Micah, that even in the Christmas season, prophecy and fulfillment is there in all of the feasts. And so now we come to the baptism of the Lord. Uh, John the Baptist baptized with a baptism for the forgiveness of sins. But he said something more was coming, and he refers to that, someone mightier than I. So as we turn to the story of the gospel in Mark and the Christology, the understanding who Jesus is present in this small pericope, we remember that we think that being baptized, we enter into a different world, we enter into God's world, that we're justified through our baptism. 
and then our lives, we're called to live that justified existence out as we, uh, in St. Paul's words, uh, still try to fill up in our lives what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. There's a mysterious saying. And so let's turn to the gospel now. Heaven and earth shall flee away when he comes to So the Gospel of Mark is a pretty simple story. Jesus comes to be baptized, um, the heavens open, the Holy Spirit, like a dove, comes down on him. Uh, we all know the story. It, it's just so compressed, but boy, there's a lot to it. First, think about it also as set up by prophecy in the Old Testament. So the first reading from Isaiah chapter 42 says, I, the Lord, have called you for the victory of justice. I have grasped you by the hand. I formed you and set you as a covenant of the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes of the blind, to bring up prisoners from confinement, and from the dungeon, those who live in darkness. It's that mention of covenant, right? Because it goes back to the Mosaic covenant uh, that was made at Mount Sinai that Jesus will say in the story of the Last Supper later in the Gospel of Mark, which we hear every time we go to Mass, my blood shed uh, for the new covenant. And so it's this covenant is part of all the events of his life. It's not simply this one action in the Last Supper. When we're talking about covenant, this um, relationship between us and God, which St. John in his gospel said is a marriage relationship between God and his people. It's a covenant, which is something um, deeply more personal than a contract. And then the second part of Isaiah is that he's setting this person who the prophet is talking to as a light for the nations. St. John says he's, Jesus is the light of the world. He opens the eyes of the blind. Jesus' work, he heals the blind. He brings prisoners out of confinement. He frees people uh, from possession by evil uh, in the dungeon of darkness. And so those are all the powers of somebody mightier than merely a prophet, mightier than a Messiah that would just restore the temple or a Messiah who is a military victory. Victor. Here's what John the Baptist said in the gospel today in Mark chapter 1. One mightier than I is coming after me. I'm not worthy to stoop and loosen the thongs of his sandals. I've baptized you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. You know, he didn't use the word Christos. He didn't say the Christ was coming. That's the translation from uh, the Greek translation for the Hebrew word Messiah. He did not use the word Messiah. He said someone mightier than I, someone who could perform all of these works. And so let's just parse through this a little bit. So first of all, it's said that uh, when Jesus was baptized, it says, on coming up out of the water, this is at the end of the reading today, 
He saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came from the heavens. You're my beloved son with you. I am well pleased. So let's look at two parts of that. The heavens opening and the voice that says he's my beloved son. In that first chapter, the Greek word that's used to describe that the heavens are opened is the Greek word schizo. And schizo means to be torn open. And so, for instance, you could have translated this verse that the heavens were ripped open. They were torn open. The uh, translators chose not to do that. They used a much more gentle word. They saw the the heavens, it says the heavens were torn open. But it's this tearing motion that's really important in this this, um, pericope. You know, that word schizo is used in one other place in the Gospel of Mark, and it's in chapter 15, and Jesus is hanging on his cross, and it says, Jesus gave a loud cry and breathed his last, and the veil of the sanctuary was torn in two from top to bottom. Well, tearing of the heavens, tearing of the veil in the sanctuary, that loud entrance into the Holy of Holies. This is one of the ways in its use of language that the Gospel of Mark ties baptism together with crucifixion. But there's a second one, because I don't want you to think I'm exaggerating this. So you go back to the reading for today. And it says that when the heavens were torn open and the, dove, and the Spirit descended like a dove, it then said, quote, You're my beloved Son. With you am, I am well pleased, end quote. The voice of the Father. And so let's go back to uh, Mark 15. And it's part of the same passage I just read. It read. This is the part about the crucifixion. So when Jesus breathes his last and the veil of the sanctuary is torn from top to bottom, the very next sentence is, when the centurion who stood facing him saw how he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. Another connection between the baptized, the voice of the Father, saying, this is my beloved Son. Now the voice of a Roman centurion saying, this is the beloved Son. You know, if you think about it historically, baptism started with the Jewish people. John the Baptist um, baptized Jewish people. Later in the Gospel of John where it talks about baptism, again, Jesus is baptizing Jewish people because his mission is to the Jewish people. Salvation comes from the Jews. But what the Gospel of Mark wants to tie together is in the beginning, this baptism of repentance, which is this Jewish ritual. By the end of the Gospel of Mark with the centurion recognizing the sonship of Jesus, this same preaching has now gone out to the whole world. You know, it's, it's interesting in the Son of God language um, that there is this connection in the middle of the Gospel of Mark between Son of God language in the baptism, Son of God language in the crucifixion, the heavens torn open in the baptism, the veil of the temple torn ov- open in, um, in the crucifixion. But it's right in chapter 10, pretty much in the middle of Mark. There's a story we'll remember really well. And this story starts in uh, 1035, I guess. 
Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he replied, What do you wish me to do for you? And they answered him, Grant that in your glory we may sit one at your right and the other at your left. Jesus said to them, Do you not know what you are asking? Can you drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? They said to him, We can. And Jesus said to him, The cup that I drink you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized you will both be baptized. They were both martyred. But to sit at my right or at my left is not mine to give, but is for those whom it has been prepared. And it's interesting that in the crucifixion, it's two thieves on either side of him. That's the place that was prepared for sinners on either side of him in the crucifixion. And so this baptism is to take your place with the sinners like Jesus took uh, his place with the sinners. It's to become a child of God. It's to recognize the sonship of, of, the, of Jesus. And so in this Gospel of Mark is this high Christology about the nature of the Son, the nature of the Incarnation, how it is that you and I enter into the Incarnation through our baptism and ultimately through the gift of the Spirit and our sharing in the communion at Mass. But I'd like to pull this all together because in the second reading from the Acts of the Apostles is how all of this went out to the Gentiles. And so in conclusion, I'd like to turn to what it means to be baptized. What can I give him? And so in Acts 10, um, it's uh, preaching about the early church. And it's St. Peter who's had this vision. And in the vision, there's this big sheet that comes down three times with all this unclean stuff to eat, shellfish and hamburgers and things like that. Um, but Peter sees this as a vision of what has been thought by the Jewish people to be unclean has now been made clean. That is, the Gentiles are called to be co-heirs with the Jews uh, to the promises made to Abraham. And so here's what Acts says. In truth, I see that God shows no partiality. Rather, in every nation, whoever fears him and acts uprightly is acceptable to him. You know the word that he sent to the Israelites as he proclaimed peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. What has happened all over Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. He went about doing good and healing all those oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And so it's this remembering of what Jesus did. And he does start out by baptizing. Um, in chapter 3 of the Gospel of John, it says that Jesus and his disciples were baptizing near the River Jordan, near where John was continuing his baptism. You see, the, in the Gospel of John, the evangelist sees this transition from the ministry of John the Baptist, where his disciples begin to follow Jesus, because Jesus is the one mightier than I. Uh, or in the Gospel of John, he calls him the Lamb of God. And so baptism is 
this necessary sacrament practiced by the early church. You know, some people look at this phrase. It says, in truth, God shows no partiality. Rather, in every nation, whoever fears him and acts uprightly is acceptable to him. Well, true enough, but in the very story that that comes from, the reason Peter shows up at the doorstep of Cornelius is because the scripture says Cornelius was already praying to God and he was already looking for help. And so uh, what we would call prevenient grace, the grace that brings you to the moment of conversion, brings you to the moment of baptism. And so you know, for some people who just like to strip quote and don't like to understand stories, they just want to find what they want in the scriptures. I think it's, they make the Bible like a Scrabble game where you shake it up and you open up the book and you pour out all the words and you arrange them to com uh, comport with your pre-existing cultural ideas. But the gospel is always a challenge to every culture. You are those that say, there's a lot of different ways to God. Well, the truth is there's 8 billion people on the planet. There are 8 billion different ways to God. But they all go through Christ Jesus. And so let's think about what that means for us Catholics. Uh, because there's a way of looking at this in the wrong way, the rigorous way. Um, and then there's the way of looking at it as the church looks at it. And so the necessity of baptism is uh, addressed in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraphs 1257 through 1261. And I just think it's worthwhile going over this basic catechesis as we think about why baptism is necessary so we understand our own faith. And what it says is, the Lord himself affirms that baptism is necessary for salvation. He also commands his disciples to proclaim the gospel to all nations and baptize them. That's Matthew chapter 28. Uh, it's the great command. Baptism is necessary for salvation for those to whom the gospel has been proclaimed who have had the possibility of asking for this sacrament. So you've had to hear the gospel and you have to have the possibility of being baptized. The church does not know of any means other than baptism that assures entry into eternal beatitude. This is why she takes care not to neglect the mission she's received from the Lord, to see that all who can be baptized or reborn of water in the Spirit, just as in the gospel today. And so this is an important thing. God has bound salvation to the sacrament of baptism, but he himself is not bound by his sacraments. So we have a visible sign of unity to God. What he does outside of this, the, the church just can't really comment on. But the importance here, if you heard the gospel and you have the capacity to be baptized, this is the necessary way to salvation. Because if you walk away from Jesus and baptism, you think God is something radically different uh, from who he really is. That's a rough road to salvation. So the next point. The church has always held the firm conviction that those who suffer death for the sake of the faith without having received baptism are baptized by their death for and with Christ. Think the slaughter of the holy innocents. They died for Christ, right? And so this is where the, this doctrine of uh, baptism by blood, this baptism by blood, like the desire for baptism, brings about the fruits of baptism without being a sacrament. And so it's this visible sign, 
and it brings about salvation. But it's not considered one of the sacraments of the church, but it's a way to God. And so 1259, for catechumens, people have been uh, evangelized, who die before their baptism. Their explicit desire to receive it together with repentance for their sins and charity assures them the salvation they were not able to receive through the sacrament. Then 1260, so if you want to be baptized and you can't, we all heard this, you're on your way to the church to get, be baptized and get killed by a drunk driver, the church considers you baptized. But the next chapter, 1260, since Christ died for all, and since all men are in fact called one in the same destiny, which is divine, we must hold that the Holy Spirit offers to all the possibility of being made partakers in a way known to God of the Paschal Mystery. Every man who is ignorant of the gospel of Christ and of his church, but seeks the truth and does the will of God in accordance with his understanding of it, can be saved. It may be supposed that such persons would have desired baptism explicitly they had known its necessity. Now that's not really a formula for human beings to apply, but it is the church's thinking expressed especially in the Second Vatican Council about the way that God operates outside of the communion of the church. And then, because this is a perennial issue, St. Augustine talks about it. As regards children who have died without baptism, the church can only entrust them to the mercy of God as she does in her funeral rites for them. Indeed, the great mercy of God who desires that all men should be saved and Jesus' tenderness towards children, which caused him to say, let the children come to me, do not hinder them. Allow us to hope that there is a way of salvation for children who have died without baptism. All the more urgent is the church's call not to prevent little children coming to Christ through the gift of holy baptism. You know, St. Augustine, in his great The City of God, the very last chapter, he talks about aborted infants and their participation in the resurrection. He said he didn't know for sure that they did, but he thought that that was really entirely likely that even they would be brought into the kingdom of God. So the baptism of the Lord, one mightier than I, the heavens torn open, the revelation of the Son of God in this sacrament of the baptism, both to the Jewish people gathered around and in that centurion at the cross. That baptism is the fundamental way that we all come into union with God. It is what the church is. That's for, for Catholics. Communion is this communion with the Holy Father. But being part of the church is all the baptized, even for those Christians who disagree with us on the meanings of Scripture and the necessity of these sacraments for salvation. How does this all come together at the end? Hey, when God tells me, I'll tell you. You'll be the first to know. I think that the key takeaway from these scriptures is the importance of baptism, this necessity for salvation, because Jesus says, go out and do this. Jesus himself oversaw or actually did baptisms, although the Gospel of John isn't exactly clear as to whether he did it, but he said he was baptizing with his disciples there along the banks of the Jordan. But this takeaway from the catechism and this understanding of this mission of the Gentiles is this, and it's an important one. God is bound by the sacraments. They're visible signs of this unseen reality. They're the normative way 
that we give ourselves to Christ and live our lives in this sacramental yet reality, which is it's here, but not yet. We are partaking of the Spirit, but more so and in a fuller way in the world that comes. And that God is not bound, God binds himself to the sacraments. We remember that God himself is not bound by the sacraments. As we celebrate baptisms in the coming year, we remember how important uh, this example of our Savior is for each of us. I hope that as we enter now into ordinary time in preparation for the season of Lent, um, that we remember the great gift of our baptism. This is Father John Arnold, and this has been Oro Valley Catholic.